What's up, everybody? This is Eve with the Healthy Charleston Podcast. For those of you who don't know, I'm a physical therapist, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the right health and fitness information that is both practical, actionable, and evidence-based. This is season two of the podcast, and we are so excited. We're going to have a little less interviewing. We're going to do some more topic-based discussions with myself and some of the made-to-move physical therapy and performance team. Maybe have some guest hosts out there. We are so excited for season two. Thank you so much for joining us and supporting us. If you have any questions for me or the crew, just search Healthy Charleston on Instagram or you can reach out to us directly at made to move pt.com that is the number two thanks so much see you soon what's up people so today is the second episode of the nate and hannah series we dive into the little cliffhanger we left last episode more about rounding your back, lumbar flexion. Is it good? Is it bad? What even is good? What even is bad? Should you be doing this? Should you not? Where does the research come from? Why are we perpetuating these things? So we talk a lot about a lot of different things, a lot of different ways to think about it, Um, speculation, a ton of research about spines and discs. Um, I am personally pretty mentally fatigued from this episode because we talked a lot about it, but I hope that it can be super helpful. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, always feel free to reach out. Give us something more to talk about. If you still need clarification, also reach out. Either way, listen to the episode. You're going to love it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Nate and Hannah series, episode two. So today, we are really diving in more to the whole lumbar flexion, rounded back, deadlifts, all this nonsense Mm -hmm. that's kind of been going around. We're here to discuss it, maybe rant about it, and maybe dispel a few myths. Probably leaving a cliffhanger. This is basically our Empire Strikes Back of episodes. (laughs) Cliffhanger. (laughs) Okay, so what we were talking about last time is the Jefferson curl and is rounding your back okay and blah, blah, blah. And so I had some people reach out to me telling me that it was a little bit unclear. And so what they thought we were saying was that you shouldn't round your back during a deadlift, but you should round it at the beginning and the end. Pretty much people were thinking like that we were saying it's okay if you round it at this point, but not at this point. But I think... What we're saying is not that at all. Yeah, so this is this is a concept that's been bandied about in the um, fitness industry for probably a little over a decade. And um, basically what happened is that everyone for a really long time was like, just lift with a rounded back. All Stu McGill's research came, or not, sorry. Oh, I was back. like, not. Just lift with a flat back. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> Wait. Jumping ahead. Had a lot of coffee today. Um, just lift with a flat back. Don't ever round your spine. Stu McGill's research had come out showing that like flexion plus compression is how you, basically how you herniate a disc, um, all that kind of stuff. And so the problem was that looking in the real world, we have all these strong men. We have this, uh, deadlifter named Konstantin Konstantinovs in powerlifting. <laughs> Dude's off. He's, he's dead now. He died in a bar fight. Kind of sad. Yeah. Um, That's how he went. Yeah. He was, he's probably in some sketch. He was like a bot or a bodyguard and like was into some weird I don't know. He probably lived a dangerous life. He was a Russian, jacked Russian dude. You know. Is that why he rounded his back? Probably, yeah. He was dangerous. Yeah, so he he came out with this video and deadlifted, um, I think it was 939, no belt, with a pretty rounded back. And so everyone looked at this, and the quote-unquote biomechanics experts came out looking at basically this uh, almost a front view of a deadlift. It wasn't a side view. And they're like, he's just rounded his thoracic spine. And everyone's like, okay, now you, we're, oh, allowed to, yeah, we're allowed to round thoracic spines. If Konstantin Konstantinovs does it and strongmen do it, that's okay. And then as it went on, like there was a lot of argument. Um, no, he's probably rounding his lumbar spine too. Like things look pretty rounded. And so then what people started to say is um, keep your spine in the position that you start in. So if you're going to round your back, start with a rounded back. 
um, because when you change your back's position under load, that increases the velocity that each segment is moving at, and that increases the force each segment is undergoing. So like, and technically that's true from a physics standpoint. Like if you, when your back changes position, if it rounds as you go up, that is more force through the posterior part of your spine, through the intervertebral discs, than if you started with a rounded back and stayed static. The problem is that your back moves when you deadlift. So like, it's not a static movement anyway. So if you start with a rounded back, you're going to end up with an extended back. If you start with a neutral spine, it might round and then go into extension. Like all these things happen when you pick up a deadlift. And so really like it's like, it's, it's hard because you can, you can see untrained people, you bring untrained people. And a lot of the time you see it with kids and you have them deadlift and they just straight up Jefferson curl, like uncontrolled cat back, the bar gets away from their body that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to injure their back doing it. It just means they don't have motor control in the deadlift. They don't know how to move their body to do the deadlift well. And so that doesn't, that's probably a slightly different scenario than like a well-trained person rounding their back. And like my back, not that I'm a good example of anything ever, but like when I, when I pull a deadlift, my back rounds before, like it starts a little bit rounded. It gets more rounded as the deadlift, like a heavy deadlift as it comes off the floor and then it straightens back out. And that's, you know, my back is fine doing that because of the tissue capacity. Can you still walk? Did you survive? Most of the time I can walk. Yeah. Um, yeah, weird. Um, so like there is probably a difference between just an uncontrolled person doing it. And like, you probably want to teach new deadlifters to try and have a neutral spine just so they have awareness of their body. But I would, I don't know. I would maybe even go against the grain and say like, maybe just let them round their backs if it doesn't hurt. Yeah, I'm going against the grain. Yeah, I think we fully... Like, okay, I think there should be a flat back deadlift, and then Mm -hmm. a whatever happens to your back happens to your back deadlift. Like, Mm -hmm. rounded back. Like, there is good reason to train your back in each position. Mm -hmm. Flat back is one of those positions. Your muscles contract in that way. Rounded back is one of those positions. Extended is one of those positions. So anytime someone's like, oh, don't overextend or don't overround, I don't know where the over is coming from. Mm -hmm. Because it's a position that your body can get into. No one ever says, well, I guess people do kind of say about the squat, like, oh, well, your knee is changing positions, so the force is changing, so you don't want to bend it while you're doing the exercise. Like, that mm-hmm. is the exercise. That's the exercise. Is yeah. the po- that's the point, is that your, your bones and your muscles are moving. And so I feel like, I think that we've fully created this whole flat back versus rounded back nonsense as a narrative over time, fitness industry, in our head. Like, mm-hmm. there is not... I don't know why we're stuck on like McGill. I mean, because because like he did like his research was the first thing to show like this is the mechanism of how a disc herniates. Wasn't like it, it just like over and over? It's over. And yeah, over. it was like thousands of cycles and a specially built machine that compressed and flexed. Exactly. And, yeah. Like it was yeah. not applicable to real life at all, and it yeah. wasn't human spines. Yeah, it was dead pig spines in a laboratory. Like so can't we just to took this and we freaking ran with mm-hmm. it. He like didn't you didn't have any. Yeah, I didn't run with it. I yeah. stopped. Like, (laughs) you just took this and you applied it to everything, everyone across the board. First of all, they're not humans. First of all, they're not alive. Second of all, they're not alive. Also, you didn't give them any time to adapt. And Mm -hmm. so everything that we always say is that you can do anything as long as you're prepared for it and you adapt to it. And you train it over time. So why do we do that with the flat back deadlift, but we Mm -hmm. don't do it with the rounded back deadlift? Everyone's like, well, it's okay to Jefferson curl as long as you progress it over time. You do that with a flat back deadlift too. You don't ever say like, hey, Joseph, go pick up the 200 pounds. But as long as you do it with a flat back, no Mm -hmm. matter what your training history is, you can do it. No, you have to train and progress that movement too. Flat back is just as difficult as rounded back and you get better at that movement. So it's like we just keep giving ourselves little like, okay, well, you can, you can round your back if you do it at the beginning or the end, but don't do it in between. Mm -hmm. Or you can round it if you're at home on the couch but don't do it with load. Like, can we just do it? Mm-hmm. Like, why are we so afraid of it? It's probably because that study. And also, like, I will say that anytime you, if I'm like, oh, I'm going to have pain with this movement or it's, gonna, it's going to hurt me, like, beliefs have a huge role in mm-hmm. that, in your brain's threat response. And so I think that's a huge part of it too. And that's just like the foundational beliefs mm-hmm. that we've told ourselves for years. And there is, so there is some like, like meeting, meeting a little bit halfway on this point too, right? Like there, you know, even before Stu McGill, people do tend to herniate discs. They tend to get that when they like, 
bend over with a rounded back, like get out of the car, round and rotate, that kind of thing. Like, hey, I bent over to tie my shoe and my back pops and now I have pain down my leg and I can't get up off the ground kind of thing. And that's like just environmentally we see that. That's not the right word, but... Um, organically? Organ- yeah, um, organically. like, And that's been a... That's just been an observation. There is... There is... Um, it is good to look at the real world like that and be like, well, how do people usually tend to hurt themselves and that's it? But if someone bends down to tie their shoe with a rounded back with that slight rotation and herniates a disc, it's because their tissue capacity was really, really, really low. And maybe if they had trained that position, things would have gotten better. Um, yeah, and like maybe, maybe they would avoid that. I can, I can tie my shoes all day long. You know, I'm generally pretty, pretty okay with that. And, you herniated yeah, doing that? Not, not recently, no. Um. So the problem is that we're like, we're still kind of like talking about these things and people like fitness coaches or whatever are like, oh yeah, rounded backs, jumps and curls. And then they go and post some shit that's like, actually don't do this. This is bad for you. And so the argument that people are now saying is, oh, well, flat back is stronger. Flat back is more efficient. Flat back is better with physics. It's like someone literally said, parentheses, physics. But, like, we can't use that as an argument because it's false. It's not even a fact. Yeah. Do you want to dig into the physics of it a little bit? Like, yeah. why, why, what are the advantages of a rounded back? So, the hit your bar, the bar is closer to your hips. Yeah. So, so the if, moment arm is shorter. Yeah. And a horizontal, um, the horizontal distance from the barbell to your hips is shorter with a rounded back. You can usually get your hips closer to it, which means your hips have to produce less torque in order for you to lift the bar up off the ground. They have to produce less force to create the torque that lifts the bar off the ground. So, it's kind of step one is you can lift more weight. Not everyone, right? Like, but probably most people, there's a reason backs round when you hit that max deadlift and it's because when you get to that point you're able to lift more weight with the same amount of force that your muscles can produce when the bar is closer to your hips and that happens with a rounded back the second part of that and this again is probably going to rub some people the wrong way is that yeah so there's two things here is that first there's optimal muscle length for all our muscles so there's a length at which our muscles sit at at which they can produce the most force and with your erector spinae like kind of those the the big movers for your back and that deadlift that might very well be in a slightly rounded position. That might that's probably not um, as short as they can go at end range extension. That's probably not in a perfectly neutral spine. A little bit of a stretch on those probably produces a more optimal muscle length to produce force. And the more rounded your back gets, the more you can rely a little bit on passive connective tissue to help lift the weight. So if you're if you kind of think of like take all the muscles out of it, if your back is just long for the ride and your hips are what's picking the weight up. Um, so you have muscles in your hips, but not your back, like the passive connective tissue in your back, your discs and your, um, ligaments and all that stuff, um, still allow for that weight to be moved. And so if the muscles in your back can't quite get the weight up, you round your back a bit. Now you can rely on the muscles and the passive connective tissue as your hips move the weight. And so you're just going to be able to lift more weight that way. And the question then is not necessarily like, is this good or bad? It's, are your tissues prepared? And again, that's, that's kind of our whole shtick here is like prepare yourself for it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's always gray area. There's no black and white. Um, I wanted to talk, did we talk about Bob Peoples last time? No. Oh, man. So Bob Peoples is my favorite deadlifter. Uh, one of my favorite deadlifters. You have probably so yeah. many. Yeah, Benedict Magnuson is my favorite. But um, So way back in the day, before like really powerlifting was a, a true sport, before we got into all the sports science stuff, there, there's this guy named Bob Peoples. And he grew up on a farm and just like, you know, farm boy strong. And yeah. oh, man, I'm going to get the number wrong. And I always do. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he deadlifted 729 pounds at 181 pounds body weight. And that record stood for a long time. Like Are it was only, that? no, absolutely <laughs> like, not. Yeah, right? <laughs> not even like well over 100 pounds off. <laughs> Your body um, weight's there, though. <laughs> yeah, the body weight's there for sure, yeah. Um, so you can Google Bob Peoples. He didn't look jacked. Um, and my favorite thing about how he deadlifted is, like, ba- not a not a word-for-word quote, but his method for deadlifting was he would bend down, straighten his legs, bring the bar into his shins, blow all the air out of his lungs, and round his back, and then pick the weight up. So, so many people are screaming right now. Yeah. So Bob Peoples Jefferson curled 729 pounds at 181 pounds body weight. And he did this a lot. His his deadlift volume training, it's not like he deadlifted occasionally. There's there's a program or two out there that theoretically have been has been attributed to him. And it's like really high volume, very, very many reps, like just a ridiculous amount of work with this. And so it's that if we're talking about like Stu McGill's work of the mm-hmm. number of times you round your back under load is what creates that delamination, eventually hernia like 
Bob Peoples probably exceeded that. He um, it was, like he did a lot of reps of deadlifts with no Valsalva maneuver, basically all the air blown, blown out of his lungs with a rounded back. He just Jefferson curled that thing. And so that's a, you know, not everyone is Bob Peoples. There's a genetic component to injury, to disc strength and all that, but everyone can probably be stronger than they are. And Bob Peoples is a really good example of before, like just the pre, uh, oh no, you need to deadlift with a straight back thing. And I think a lot of the, sorry, if, if you want to interject at any point, no, too, I'm going to roll right now. Yeah. So I think, and I could be wrong about this. I think a lot of where the flat back stuff comes from is Olympic weightlifting. And so that's been a sport for a very long time. Um, and there was, a, there were actually more movements in it. There's a third movement called the clean and press. And if you ever want to see just the gnarliest strict press, quote unquote, <laughs> It's, it's just awesome. Just find YouTube videos of old timey, uh, clean and press. But so when you're doing a clean, when you're doing a snatch, you'd probably need a flat back or a slightly extended back that transfers force from your legs and your hips into the bar. When you round your back, that's going to absorb the force. That's going to act as a shock absorber. So for a deadlift, it doesn't really matter how fast you pick it up. As long as it goes from the ground to your hips, you're fine. For a clean and for a snatch, it really, really, really matters how fast the bar is moving. And so to increase the speed of that, to transfer the force from your big muscles into the bar, like a flat back is probably going to be better. And I think that's a lot of where the tradition of of flat back lifting came from. So if you are an Olympic weightlifter and you're deadlifting in order to improve your clean and you're not just deadlifting in order to get bigger back muscles or to get a bigger deadlift, maybe you do want to focus on that flat back a little bit. That's like clean pulls and stuff. A deadlift should be different than a clean anyway for most people. So I think that's probably where a lot of that comes from because it just seems like it came into vogue in like the seventies or eighties. And it was like, Hey, flat back it. And then we got research supporting and all that. And now we're, hopefully we're kind of moving back the other way of like movement optimism. Like hopefully, yeah, there are, just us. yeah, there are, I know, right. There, I like we're in a bubble. There are no good and bad movements in, in a bubble by themselves. It's always dependent on the context, the training history, um, the current volume, like what your body is prepared for basically. What you so. believe is going to injure you. Yep. And like, that's what we say all the time is that there's so many other factors Mm-hmm. Like there's so much gray area. It just depends on the context that it happens again. Mm-hmm. It depends on the day and the time and how you're feeling. So like, why are we shaming your back moving in a way that it was supposed to move? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm totally okay with the flat back deadlift, whatever. I'm, I like to Olympic lift too. Like, mm-hmm. can we just have both? Can we have deadlifting for performance and Olympic lifting and then deadlifting to just perform the deadlift, which from my understanding, deadlifting is getting the weight from on ground to off the ground and yeah. at your hips. There's like, what is the, what are the points of performance mm-hmm. in a deadlift? Is it flat back? Is it rounded back? I don't think it matters. Yeah, it's picking the weight up is. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, so the other thing too is like, there are some people that do deadlift a lot better with a flat back. Like I would say it's probably fairly rare. So people like Mike Tuscher, um, might be it honestly, but like some people do do better with a flat back. And so one of the reasons that might be are quad strength versus posterior chain strength. And so if your posterior chain, like your back muscles, your glutes and your hamstrings are overwhelmingly stronger than your quads, say for like someone like me, then you round your back, your knees ex- can extend a little bit. You get a more optimal position for creating force with your quads to get the bar off the ground. And then you can rely on the strength of your muscles in your back to extend as you come up. If your quads are overwhelmingly stronger than your posterior chain, then you might want your back in an isometric contraction because you might get be able to get it off the ground with a rounded back, but maybe your rectus spinae aren't strong enough to actually extend and lock out the deadlift. And so, uh, it like it really. So for a lot of CrossFitters, maybe like maybe they can lift more weight with a flatter back. Probably not. Like CrossFit's yeah. a little more. Uh, like the athletes are a little more well-rounded than like very specific sport people. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, like like in Olympic weightlifting. So I don't know. It, it probably depends on your strengths and your weaknesses and individual body characteristics and, and all that kind of stuff, which is going to be the most efficient. But I've always yeah. been told, oh, your back is weak and that's why you round mm-hmm. it during deadlifts. You're but transferring I'm, more load to your back. Exactly. I'm like, no, it's actually easier to pick this up with yeah. my back rounded. Like I don't feel pain with it. I feel comfortable mm-hmm. with it. It's, it's when people say efficient, do they mean lazy? Because mm-hmm. efficient has nothing to do with physics. Efficient is the easiest way to pick it up. So if people are saying efficiency is with a flat back, we now know that physics does not support that mm-hmm. statement, right? Physics means that 
it's actually easier, more efficient, I guess, to pick it up with a rounded back. Mm-hmm. The moment are unless shorter. your unless your quads are really 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 strong, and that may be you. It's not, not me. It's not yeah. me. So yeah. So the what is his name? Constantine whatever. Constantine Constantinovs. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yep. So he rounded back deadlifted nine hundred thirty one. I think it was thirty nine. Yeah. But sure. he flat back deadlifted seven hundred pounds. Yeah. So when people, I mean, that dispels a few myths of. Don't do this under heavy load. Mm -hmm. He did it under the heaviest load. Yeah. And he couldn't not do it. He couldn't flat back. Mm -hmm. And then for people to say, well, you're stronger in a flat back position. And like, I have this discussion all the time because I definitely used to say these things because I I thought that they were true because that's what someone told me. And so then I Mm -hmm. told it to someone else. And then I really thought about it and, you know, did some research. And the flat back deadlift does not mean that that's stronger than a rounded back deadlift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he basically went from like, oh, you know, that's a pretty heavy deadlift for someone who weighs 200 plus pounds, like 700. That's solid, dude, to one of the best deadlifters of all time because he rounded his back. And it's without a belt. Like, it's it's, honestly, there's videos of it. It's one of the coolest deadlifts ever. It's just ridiculous. And he's jacked, so, you know. So it's even cooler. Is that the guy you have in your office? No, that's Benedict Magnuson. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, classic mix up. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so let's clarify. So, someone asked me, they so what they said was where people can be prone to injury in their spine is rounding in the middle of a deadlift because it can't bear the load, or they're not engaging their glutes, legs properly, and they shoot their hips up. So just making sure people still understand that that is not okay. So why do your hips shoot up? The hips shoot up because you're trying to get your hips closer horizontally to the bar. Because you're, it's, there's a few reasons. Like maybe your quads can't quite produce enough force in that, in that slightly deeper knee flexion. Your quads are a little bit weaker. Um, maybe your hips can't produce the force in order to get the bar up when it's that far away. And so there's a reason your body goes into that position. There's a reason our bodies want to get into a position to lift the weight. And it's because it's going to be able to, it's going to be the most effective way to produce force in that, for that lift and that person specifically. When people's hips pop up out of the hole, when they start to lift and then their backgrounds, they probably should have just started with higher hips and a slightly rounded back. Like, because and, and when that happens to a lot of time when someone's hips pop up out of the hole, it's not necessarily the issue that the hips pop up, it's that their shins move backward, their their knees extend and their shins move back, and now the bar is like two inches away from their legs and it's gonna be way harder to lift at that point. So like the, there, there there's a reason your body goes into a position and instead of just like you know, sometimes you wanna try and fight away from that, especially with like Olympic lifting, highly complex movements, you know, you might want to try and fix positions, but also maybe just prepare your body to be in that position. There's, especially when we have all these, like we have physics backing it up. We have decreased moment arm. We have like increased, uh, passive, passive connective tissue, um, contribution to the lift. We have like, maybe if your back is stronger, you can lift it better that way. So, you know, there are reasons that's sufficient instead of just trying to fight that and having a mediocre deadlift forever, like prepare your, <laughs> sorry, like Shit. prepare your body for it, right? Like, but that is exactly like, yeah. that is under the condition that you have prepared your body for it. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not saying, oh, like, oh, you can deadlift 200 pounds with a flat back. Well, next time try it rounded. Mm-hmm. Not if you've never trained oh, yeah. rounded back, right? Yeah. So like you didn't get to the deadlift that you are today by starting at that weight. You mm-hmm. did train that over time. So that's what pisses me off about when people say like, oh, well, you can Jefferson curl it because you've trained over time. You do that with every movement. Mm-hmm. You did it with the flat back deadlift. The flat back deadlift is not inherently safer, but it's just that you started there. You started probably 65 pounds and you went to 85 and 115 and you did allow for adaptation. So just do that with other movements. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to be a bad movement. Just prepare your body for it. You can start with Jefferson girls and you can start light or you can just start with a more rounded back in like a lighter deadlift and work your way up there and just like do what's comfortable to you. Yeah. And this is, I think people, people get really caught up in, in biomechanics and form and like those things probably matter a bit, right? That's the 5% of what matters. The 95% of things that matter are training history and proper progression for your body. And that's, that's the same. Like you look at anything, you look at running, you look at deadlifting, you look at CrossFit, all these things, the mechanics for each individual are going to be different. The mechanics probably don't matter all that much. 
the training, how you prepare your body to handle it is what really, really, really matters. And so you can't just, if, if, you know, if you hurt yourself deadlifting, it's probably, and you've been deadlifting for a long time, like it may not really be a form tweak that fixes it. It's going back and doing a proper progression, strengthening the tissues that gave way under that load. And sometimes it's a form tweak, you know, especially for more complex things like Olympic weightlifting, Mm but like just prepare your body for that position. And that's, and that may take years that that's a, and we're, we're probably going to talk about this a little bit, but like adaptations in intervertebral discs, it's not a fast process. You know, this is something that you're not going to get in a year. You're not going to get in six months. It's something that's going to take a really long time, but that's just how lifting is. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That's how every, all sports are. All, all activity is, is looking at longevity. Like when did you start deadlifting? Oh man, I think, Oh, yeah. I think my first deadlift was like 15 years old and then I didn't deadlift for like four years and I just bench pressed and curled and okay, so we won't, like, we won't count yeah, more three. seriously, like probably 11, 12 years ago. Okay, exactly. So, so you yeah. started so long ago mm-hmm. and that's how you've gotten to this point. And so it's not that we're saying, Oh, like you should be able to deadlift this today. Like everything yeah. in training is a progression. Like you're in this for the long game. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. That's that. I, feel, I still don't feel like it's over. Like, I still feel like people yeah. are going to come out of this and be like, oh, but what about this? And what about yeah. this? And that's okay. Like, it's, it's good know. to question things. Like, that's... Yeah. I was this way, right? Like, so so when I first got into lifting, I was on all these online forums looking at bodybuilders and stuff. And it's like, someone would round their back like a tenth of an inch or like it would be like a shadow of like, maybe that was a rounded back from this angle. And I would jump on people. No way. Like, yeah. Everyone goes through this, right? It's the... Oh. I specifically remember, so not, not biomechanics or anything, but like bodybuilder belief way back, way back, God, I'm old, um, you know, like 10, 15 years ago was like, you have to drink a gallon of water a day. Like that's important. And like, I got in a significant argument with someone online about like, you have to drink a gallon of water and like, why? I was like, it's just what you do. I didn't have a reason for it. And so like take things like find your belief and then break it down piece by piece to the baseline level. And if you run into a point of like, why, why I don't know the why of this, like try and learn it, you know, look up research. Um, probably don't just look up what a guru says. That's usually wrong. Like question what we say too. That's like, we, we don't want to be gurus. We want to, we want people to argue with us. I mean, no, we, argue with us. It's, it's actually way yeah, more fun. Yeah. It helps us learn. It helps everyone else learn. So yeah. yeah, cause that's the goal. And that's, I yeah. think that's the problem is that everyone looked at McGill as a guru and it was like, all right, this yeah, one he, study. All he right. kind of made himself into one at this point, but like, yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't want to rip on him too hard. Cause like he probably Wait, are is you friends like, with him? no, I don't know. No, I don't, I'm not ripping on him, but I'm just ripping on the way that we've interpreted his research this. is way over interpreted. Exactly. Way. Yeah. Over applied. The conclusions are far beyond what his research really supports. I think. And like, I love the asking of the why, like mm-hmm. why should I not round my back? And what does your coach say? Cause it's bad for your back. It's unsafe. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. So stop saying that. That's mm-hmm. what pisses me off. Stop posting about it. Stop saying, oh, don't pick up your dumbbells like this. Don't do this lift. This is bad for you. Like, do a little research, and then you'll find that it's actually not bad. Mm-hmm. That's what makes me mad. It's just like the reasoning. It's everyone just says, oh, it's do this, because that's what you do, right? Drink mm-hmm. a gallon of water, because that's what you do. And if we just keep perpetuating these things, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, movement optimism, right? Like, maybe everything is okay in the right situations. So, like, the, the beard you so, best... The beard... What is it? Beard, beard the best you can be guy. Yeah. So he was the one who, if you don't follow him on Instagram, go follow. It's really funny. He made a bunch of videos pretty much making fun of the way that everyone's so perfect and technical about mm-hmm. their form. And he was like, look, we don't move this way mm-hmm. in everyday life. And that was also one of those things that everyone was like, oh my God, yes, this is so great. I agree with this, but not under load. Yeah, but that's the whole point. Stop disclaiming yeah. it. Like, stop being like under conditions because you don't do anything under load before you do it without load. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can write Yeah, everything is loaded it. anyway. There is no such thing unless you're in outer Oof. space as no load. So yes. Your body wow. is still load. Um, Great point. All right. You want to talk about discs? I kind of do. I'm really excited. All right. Alright, so with the round back deadlift, right? Round back lifting in general, the the big thing we're all worried about is damaging your discs and um, herniating discs basically. So I want to talk a little bit about what intervertebral discs are, what the current research says in regards to how they adapt, and that's been a really big thing, is like 
even as far, I mean, even not not even that long ago, like eighties, nineties, early two thousands, even within the last few years, there have been research that come, researches that come out and say like intervertebral disc tissue turnover is so slow that they cannot adapt within the human lifetime to load, and that turns out that's super wrong. Um, like Aren't they jelly donuts. Maybe. Basically jelly donuts, yeah. <laughs> jelly so, donuts don't change. They're yeah. just jelly donuts. Yeah. So let's real brief anatomy, right? So you have a vertebra, part of your, the bony part of your spine on top. You have a vertebra on the bottom. And in between, you have this intervertebral disc. And the intervertebral disc is not bone. It is a it is very, very strong layers of connective tissue. Um, the outer part of it is called the annulus fibrosis. And this is made up of really, really strong connective tissue that are kind of cross-hatched in pattern. So multiple layers of it one on top of the other, basically like laminated on there. Um, and these resist outward forces and pulling forces and stretching and all that kind of stuff. In the middle of the disc is more of a gelatin-like substance called the nucleus pulposus. And the nucleus pulposus is what helps with impact absorption. So say that like you deadlift something really heavy because that's what we're on right now. Um, the force goes through Doesn't the vertebra. Have to be heavy, apparently. Yeah, deadlift anything. It. Standing up, right? Standing up, jumping, walking. <laughs> Gotta do it with the so, flat back. Yeah, so force goes down through your vertebra. It goes in the intervertebral disc. It um, pressurizes the nucleus pulposus in the middle, the gelatin-like substance. The pressure expands into the annulus fibrosis from the nucleus pulposus and the, nucle- the annulus fibrosus basically contains that pressure and it allows for movement of the spine where otherwise it would not be. It allows for up and down movement. And so if it was a hard tissue, it would just break when things like this happen, when impact and heavy loads happen. If it was just completely gelatin, then it would just fall apart and mush. But so the intervertebral disc is this really cool thing that allows us basically to deal with impact and movement in a way that most of the other tissues in our body can't. So your back is made for this kind of stuff, right? So... I want to talk a little bit about disc degeneration because this is where this is this is part of the issue of like what happens, right? So honestly, after reading a bunch of the research and I've thought about it for a while, I don't know that disc degeneration is not just another way to adapt to load. So yep. people think of it as a specifically bad thing. So what tends to happen is when when your disc is loaded over time, as you even just as you age, all this kind of stuffs. Um, there there are these uh, cells inside the nucleus pulposis called chondrocytes and um, they traditionally make collagen they make this connective tissue I feel and like I'm in anatomy yeah now. everyone's falling asleep right now no, so I love it <laughs> they also they also create something called proteoglycans which are these molecules that bind and attract water all this means is that um, the <clears throat> these chondrocytes create something that means that it sucks water into your disc when there's more of them and your disc height increases and it can absorb more impact basically it looks healthier <clears throat> um the the most proteoglycans we have, the most um, gelatin-like our nu- nucleus pulposus is, is when we're born. So that's when you have the most water content in your disc. As you get older, it decreases up until like basically throughout your life. And what will happen is instead of making uh, type 2 collagen and proteoglycans, these chondrocytes will start to make type 1 collagen as things are very, are like quote unquote overloaded is the term they use in the research. I think it's just loaded. So when the discs are loaded, they start to shift the type of collagen they make to type 1 and they stop making as much proteoglycan. And so you lose water content in the disc and the nucleus pulposus becomes more of a fibrous connective tissue, more like the annulus fibrosus versus a gelatin-like. So Theoretically, that changes the mechanics of the disc and decreases the impact absorption and, and ability to like move quite as much. So that all sounds really bad, right? You say that and it's like, well, the disc is losing height and it's losing the ability to deal with load and all that kind of stuff. It, I don't know if it really is though. So when when runners run, right? So they they get stiffer tendons. Um, they get better elastic energy return when a tendon is stiff and. So like an Achilles tendon and a runner might become really, really stiff. That makes them a better runner. It doesn't mean the tendon is now worse. The tendon may not be able to move quite as much as it did before. Um, sometimes it still can. You may lose like a little bit of range of motion at the ankle. Not always if you really work on it. But sometimes that's a beneficial adaptation to the sport that you're trying to do. So I don't know necessarily. And this is and again, this isn't this this is my speculation. This isn't super really even sport in the research at all, but I'm betting within the next 20, 30 years, it starts to come around this way. Um, this is just another way to ad- adapt to load, especially heavy load. Um, so there have been a whole bunch of, uh, animal studies, animal exercise studies on intervertebral discs, um, that I want to talk about really, really quickly. I'm going to say dicks at some point. So I'm just oh going to throw it out there. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm going to, I'm going to say Intervertebral dicks. Yeah. So I'm just going <laughs> to say it right now, just so everyone's okay. Okay. Wait, question. Yep. Okay. Okay. So if, 
if when you're a baby, mm-hmm. you have the most proteoglycans and the best mm-hmm. disc height and yep. the most hydrated disc. It's like, why does that matter? You're a baby. Yep. So I think the reason, I think babies have that because they crawl and they lay and they do nothing. And so as you start to load, as you start to load structures, they adapt to that load, right? And we do yeah. know at this point that discs adapt to load, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. So when it says overloaded or just loaded, like what do you mean? Just growing up, just getting, just like yeah, so, standing and having gravity affect you? So basically there there are some, um, on these in vitro studies, so they like take a disc out of an animal or they take cells out of a disc, um, and they load them basically with what, what was called hydrostatic pressure. And this hydrostatic pressure is basically what triggers these these cells to create the collagen and the proteoglycans. Um, but hydrostatic pressure around cells and discs makes them do things. And so there seems to be a certain amount of hydrostatic pressure that creates the biggest anabolic response, the response that leads them creating the most like collagen type two and proteoglycans, which we are saying is a good thing. And this is a lot of assumptions on the part of both researchers and me, right? Yeah. So, Basically, what, what we have is that in, in animal studies that exercise in dogs, so all these dogs are basically made to run on treadmills, and there's one study that made them run up to 40 kilometers a day for like five weeks, like just brutal on these dogs. And then they freaking kill the dogs and dissect them and take the discs out. Yeah. Um, oh, I did not need to know that. Yeah, not, not nice studies. Not um, nice. <laughs> but what we find is that exercise in dogs improves the long-term ability of discs to absorb nutrients. So discs don't really have... I'm going to say dicks again. Oh, I just want to say it. All right. So discs have the ability... Don't, don't really have blood flow on the inside. The outside of the annulus fibrosus has some blood flow. The inside of the annulus fibrosus and the nucleus pulposus get nutrients through the vertebra on top and the vertebra on bottom through these intervertebral end plates. Um, and so basically there's a, there's a certain amount of pressure, hydrostatic pressure that allows for the diffusion of small molecules, um, like oxygen and lactate through these intervertebral implants. And then, um, the pumping action of loading and unloading allows for the diffusion of larger nutrients like glycogen and all these other things that we need and, and like metabolic waste products coming out of the cell that we need to make the cell, the, the structure work, the intervertebral disc work. And so long-term running in dogs has been shown to increase the ability of the disc to absorb nutrients, basically. Um, running in rats increased the, the collagen, basically collagen production, other stuff production without an increase in cell death. Um, more, more running in dog, too much running in dogs um, increased too much running, yep. quote unquote, increased collagen synthesis in the nucleus pulposus, like type one collagen synthesis. So like what they took that as a, much? that's what they, that, that's yeah. So they assumed that was bad. They said like, this is bad, but like, exactly. there's not really, we're kind of just assuming that's bad. You're assuming that the way your body adapts to something differently mm-hmm. is bad. That's the problem. Yep. So we don't know. Yeah. And so things, you know, things like that. So like basically what, what they found through all of these animal studies is that moderate exercise seemed to trigger this really solid anabolic response and discs can adapt to that or disc cells, cells taken from discs tend to, um, respond anabolically to that. What they, another, I thought was kind of interesting was they made a bunch of rats walk bipedally. So on, on their back legs and they all herniated their discs. So wait, what, why does that matter? What is that? I don't think it really, I thought it was. Kind of so. All right, they're not here's used my, to that. They don't do that. Yeah, exactly. They're rat, but like all this, all the stuff on Stu McGill's research is done on dead pig spines, four-legged animals. So, like when you when a four-legged animal walks, they don't really experience as much compression. Exactly. Yeah. So you you may you change the spine to something that you're simulating basically what a human spine would be doing, and they all herniate. We don't herniate our discs walking, right? So, and then, and in fact, the, the walking and slow jogging, um, seem to correlate the best with the amount of hydrostatic pressures that increase intervertebral disc anabolic signaling. So theoretically in these studies, okay. the research is really, really limited. I think yeah. it's so limited that it may not be useful because it's like eight hours of walking increases anabolic signaling and stuff like that. Oh my gosh. And so they, the, some of the authors in some of these studies straight up do say too, like, lifting heavy things is going to be bad and by heavy things they mean picking up like a 20 kilogram weight or like standing up with a rounded back 
like seems to be more pressure than intervertebral discs want to adapt to. And that just cannot be the case if you look at everything in real life. They're making that assumption based off making dogs run horizontally. Rats run. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Weren't yeah. dogs running? Well, so, so they're, they're basically, they found all these, they found this range of hydrostatic pressures that when you apply them to disc cells creates anabolic signaling. And they're saying things outside of those pressures result in disc degeneration. Like, you just can't make those assumptions. Yeah, it's a big, big assumption. And so, I think, honestly, the the research is so limited at this point that we can't really... Like, it has to be more of an art form, like a clinic, clinically what do you see versus, like, what's in the research. Because it's just not enough to be useful at this point. And, like, if you go based purely on the research, then nobody's going to lift everything ever, and all we're going to do is jog and walk um, for disco. On all fours. And, like, we just... We know that just doesn't doesn't really work like you don't tell someone that comes into your clinic with um degenerative disc related pain if that's a thing that hey just go jogging and and your discs will be better and so that's the other thing too is like healthy discs seem to respond differently to loading than like degenerative discs like cells from degenerative discs like there there's a difference there we just don't know what it is really yeah so like what is a healthy disc yeah so they define healthy as um a disc that uh has high proteoglycan content and has high type to collagen. What if those things are bad? The like well, they're assuming that they're good. They're assuming that they're good. Like what they're... if they just happen like with changes in yeah. hormones, changes as you age? Yep. We don't know if high this or high this is good or bad. Yeah. But we're and gonna so make an assumption about it. They're assuming that it's good and babies are the ones with these highest amounts of this type of stuff, well, right? And then it? as you age in, in elite athletes, there's faster disc degeneration in every elite athlete sport that we've looked at. But not an increase. There's some increased back pain because they're elite athletes. But um, if you look, and and then too, there's some studies that kind of counteract this like steady pressure, right? So one of the things they say is static loading of the intervertebral discs is bad. That's going to decrease anabolic signaling. That's going to increase type one collagen production, decrease proteoglycan, all that kind of stuff. If there's a study specifically looking at endurance cyclists that show better disc health in endurance cyclists than sedentary peers, and they're in a static, rounded position for hours at a time. Like, what is better disc health? What does it mean? Yeah, because we and don't so, really know what it means. Yeah, I think if we take a step back and say, like, okay, let's not call it disc degeneration, let's call it disc adaptation, maybe mm-hmm. disc health is that degenerative process to an extent. Like, right? your discs have adapted to yeah. this. So yeah, like, maybe there's a reason we have decreased proteoglycan content, decreased type. And this, again, speculation, right? Like, don't. All, but, but like the research gonna, is all speculation, so we're yeah. allowed to speculate. Yeah, don't like egg my house if you disagree with this, though. Oh my know, gosh, someone's no. going to set me on fire. That's but fine. But I, I don't know. I think it's worth asking the question, like, why do we think this is bad? And because, yes. again, doesn't really correlate with pain. You know, like disc disc degeneration, degenerative joint disease, degenerative disc disease, all this stuff doesn't really correlate with pain, with clinical significance, with a lot of things. So. It's changes to the spine. We we have a really crappy word for it, but like it may not matter all we that much. We just don't understand it. So okay, so whenever you get mm-hmm. X rays and they mm-hmm. compare your spine to what quote unquote a normal spine, who is that normal spine? Like, who has the spine? Yeah. Like, where did they get it? Whose spine is that? Yep. And why are we assuming that every change that happens to our body compared to a baby's spine or? Mm-hmm quote-unquote perfect anatomy which doesn't exist like why are we assuming that those differences are bad yep that's like the whole body image debate it's like the differences are the differences aren't bad who are we really comparing this to because perfect and normal doesn't exist Mm -hmm. there is a huge amount of variation and so instead of looking at the like you said the degeneration look at it more as adaptation and we can't say that that adaptation is good or bad but we can't say that it's an adaptation Mm -hmm. like i'm Again, like maybe, you know, on the radical side, I'm fully convinced that labral tears in people like baseball players or CrossFitters is Dancers. a positive adaptation. Yeah. Because you needed more mobility. Mm. Yeah, there's a study specifically looking at labral tears in dancers, like hip labrum, not shoulder yeah. labrum. And all almost every dancer has like a torn hip labrum, but it be, it's, it's because it allows them to get into more external rotation. And then they compensate for that by having like enormous gemellus... Um, Superior. superior yeah like i bet so, a lot of olympic lifters have hip lift <coughs> tears because mm-hmm. look at them like they yeah. need a huge amount of mobility but also yep. they're super strong mm-hmm. so like saying that oh having a labral tear is bad or having a shorter disc is bad and that you're going to have pain there's so many different arguments there one mm-hmm. pain is a part of a normal human experience it's, mm-hmm. i mean like everyone's yeah. going to have pain 
you don't want pain that interferes with your you know day to day life. That's when you want to intervene. Yep. But like the pain itself doesn't mean that something is wrong, and something being quote unquote damaged doesn't mean that something is wrong. Like mm-hmm. I don't know why we call it damage mm-hmm. because we don't know that it was a negative adaptation. Yeah, we don't know if these adaptations are positive or negative, basically. And especially because they don't correlate well with pain. So So why does this matter? Okay, so like yeah. if you haven't been listening so, for the past 20 minutes. Yes, everyone's asleep at this point. Everyone tuned out. So there is one study so far, and this just came out um, a couple years, three years ago, I guess. No, sorry, I'm on the wrong study. This came out this year in 2020. One single study looking at exercise trying to change um, intervertebral discs in people with back pain, basically. So um, a bunch of people came in with back pain to this clinic, and basically what the authors did is had them do like a really, really solid deadlift program um, and running. So they like ran and deadlifted and like at pretty appropriate loads and... uh, I mean, just like an actual solid program. And I have the whole thing right here. I'm not going to read it because it's a lot. But so basically they worked on like strength. They did feel very heavy. They worked on muscular endurance. They they periodized it. So sometimes they were doing like 20 to 25 rep deadlifts. Sometimes they're doing like six to 10 rep deadlifts. This was a six month study. And so here's what happened is 53% of the people were compliant with it. Most of the people, like almost half the people dropped out um, because it was hard. Probably a lot. It sounds like a lot of deadlifting. Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, it was, it was like twice a week deadlifting. Um, so, and, and it was cardio in between because they, because like running probably helps provide some of that, that intervertebral disc health. Um, they compared it to traditional PT of like manual therapy, motor control, transverse abdominis, all that stuff, blah, 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 blah. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Nothing changed in the intervertebral discs in six months, unfortunately. Like the obviously the people deadlifting got like way stronger. Um, they didn't put any measures of actual back pain in this study, and I'm betting they have them somewhere, but they didn't publish them. They probably published like something different, or they're going to. Um, when was this done? 2020. Oh shoot! So, yeah, it was it was published this year. But that's the thing; um, it's only over six months. Yeah, well, that's what they said. Is this is the first study looking at real world adaptations in intervertebral discs where they didn't? That's not in animals, and it's not like. Uh, a cross-sectional study of here's a bunch of runners, they have good disc health. It's yeah. they, they took people, they put them through a process, they took people that didn't really lift, put them through a process and looked to see if there were disc changes and nothing really changed in the discs. And so uh, probably back pain got better, I would, I would guess, but they didn't publish that. But... What so I actually emailed the authors because I was like this is because they didn't actually publish all the the actual protocols so oh, I don't know what yeah. it was okay. and talked with them a little bit and um, they said it probably just takes longer than six months I mean even yeah. tendon adaptations take like four to six months bone density changes can't even be detected until like nine to twelve months um, muscle changes really can't be detected until like six weeks you know so and that's like minor minor that's, minor changes yeah. so there's a whole bunch of uh, like MRIs may not be the wet, best way to check for disc changes, all this kind of stuff. Is that how they measured it? Yeah, so uh, they looked at T2 um, normalization time on MRIs. Mm-hmm. Basically shows how, like how much water content is in discs. Um, so, okay, yeah, a few things. Yeah. It could be that it takes way longer. Yeah, and I'm betting that's it. Or it could be that it doesn't matter. Yeah, also that. That the changes that you see on an MRI have no association mm-hmm. to pain and how much you can lift. Yeah. So... It goes again to say that the adaptations that we are Mm -hmm. maybe looking for, we might not need to be looking for them. Also, what I think a really nice thing that the study shows is that um, six sets of hard deadlifts a week, like three sets per week, three sets twice per week of like pretty hard deadlifts, a variety of rep ranges didn't make their discs worse. Yep. So there was no, there was no degeneration. And so there were actually some um, positive changes, but they didn't quite reach significance when they control mm-hmm. cause so many people dropped out. So, and it was super recent um, and like, that's the thing yeah. is that we are just beginning to scratch the surface. Yeah. And that's what they like. This is the only study looking at this so far. So it's going to be another like 10 to 20 years before we really have good answers for this. So that's why like clinically we just like, yeah. it just has to be clinical skills, like the like clinical judgment of what works for people that you see pattern recognition versus like relying on the research at this point. There's just not, art. Yeah. Because we're behind, the research is behind like mm-hmm. 10 to 20 years. Yeah. But what you can probably say from this is that six months of hard deadlifts are not bad for the back. So, but or, what is bad? Yeah, I know. Right? You yeah. You get really into this. You know, I know. what is bad? What is good for and bad? Back? Yeah. What is good? What is bad? Yep. It's a lot. Yeah. 
But that is all my disc stuff. There was a lot more, but it's just too much and nobody cares. So um, if, anybody, if anybody is interested, like feel free to ask questions and we'll talk about it at some point. All right. So let's hit the highlights. All right. Rounding your back is not good or bad. It's dependent on <laughs> the context of everything with that individual. I feel like people probably think that we're like the most like... I know politician diplomatic PT because we're yeah. like it's not good or bad it just depends but like that's the truth everything yeah. in life like it just depends yeah it de- so like if someone came in here and had like a fresh disc herniation and they have shooting pain down their leg and they can barely bend over I'm not going to have them Jefferson curl you know especially if it increases I mean if it didn't increase symptoms. are you going to have them deadlift if when they're able to exactly. so so can I just throw one more factoid right come on, factoid come on. so there's a study looking at um it's called a kinetic mri which means you can move in the Ooh. mri and actually see movement and it was looking at the uh, mechanics of discs so degenerated discs so minimally degenerated discs what is a degenerative disc Nate I know like so minimally change discs um when you flex your back when you round forward it does bulge backward a little bit when discs become more degenerated, when you flex your back, the discs bulge, um, don't bulge backward. When you extend your back, the discs bulge backward into the nerve roots. So like people with severe disc degeneration, mechanically speaking, when we always think of like McKenzie stuff, like extend your back to get the disc bulge back in, that apparently only works mechanically with like minimally bulging discs, like very, very small things. If someone has a severe herniation or... Um, like very like a progressively degenerated disc, like grade three or four. When you extend your back, that's when it actually moves backward. Um, but does it matter? Like, does it matter what the mechanics of the disc exactly. are doing? Because when people do the McKenzie stuff, it works. I mean, it works temporarily for temporary pain exactly. relief. It doesn't do anything long. But it does it work because it's putting the disc back? No, apparently not. That's right. not how disc mechanics. And that's from like two thousand. Hang on, I have it pulled up. It works because you're desensitizing, moving in a non-threatening manner. Increasing the patient's confidence, efficacy. Yeah. Like, I don't... Like, are we actually thinking that we're, like, putting the disc back? Because if the discs are so easily movable... That's literally what I was told in PT. This no is wonder this studies we from, feel fragile. Yeah, this study's from 2009, by the way. We've known about this for 11 years. And I was told in PT school that you suck the disc back in when you extend your back. So... Oh, my God. This is why we talked about PT school last week. Yeah. So, like... If the discs are so easily, like, suckable... Yeah. <laughs> then, like, no wonder people think that they're fragile. Mm. But the truth is that it's not. It's they're not fragile. Not. Yeah, our they're bodies not aren't fragile. Suckable. And like, okay, oh, whatever, suckable. <laughs> Even if they do move back and forth, that's is that not the point for things to be moving? Yeah. Like, why do we always? Where does the the bias come from that that mm-hmm. is bad? That high proteoglycans is good. That. This spine is good. This is bad. Then mm-hmm. what are we comparing it to? Because anytime that you say good or bad, yeah. you're comparing it to something. We're assuming that there's increased disability with those things, but they don't correlate well with pain. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. Yeah, it it's really a lot to is. think about. I'm just glad you didn't screw up discs when you were saying sucking, too, because that would have been pretty bad. <laughs> suckable? You yeah, mean? suckable. Yeah. All right. Well, I All feel right. like that's good for today. It's a good ending point. Yeah. All right, everyone, if you have any more comments, questions, or concerns, always reach out. Like we said, we love to argue and discuss so we can all become better clinicians, better people. Yeah, I'm a little fatigued. Yeah, I'm tired. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. See you guys. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on the Healthy Charleston Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram, search Healthy Charleston, one word, like, follow, comment on today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, if you have possible guests that you want us to bring on, if you have any topics you want us to discuss, reach out there, send us a direct message. We would love some feedback. Also, if you get any extra time, head over to iTunes, give us a rating. Again, put comments there. We love your feedback. Have a phenomenal day.